Amen. Well, uh, evening, everyone. It's great to be uh, together again this evening. Um, let me add my welcome to Paddy from earlier on, and it is great to be getting back into the book of Acts uh, this evening, uh, too. I'm really, really excited to be uh, getting back into the series. For those of you who, haven't, uh, who weren't with us, uh, we spent about 10 months or so. Um, I was looking back in the calendar to make sure I was right. From September 2022 through to June last year, working through the first 14 chapters, um, of the book of Acts. And the plan now is just to kind of speed up a little bit, hence the lengthy uh, reading uh, this evening. We're going to speed up and work our way through the second half of this book, the final 14 chapters, hoping to round off uh, around at the end of July time uh, this year. Now, we don't have too much time this evening uh, to spend looking back, as you can imagine, with this uh, long passage to be working through. Um, But for now, let me just uh, get us back into where we do find ourselves. Let's situate ourselves here in the book and remember the highlights of, of what we've seen so far. First of all, a reminder that this book of Acts really serves as this volume two, doesn't it, that follows on from the book of Luke, the gospel that Luke uh, wrote. He wrote them both. And just as his gospel account served to faithfully bear witness to all that Jesus did, his, his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, serving to give us certainty about those things, so now the book of Acts continues along that line, bearing witness to Jesus' continuing work even after his ascension by the Spirit through his people. And Luke's orderly account then here in Acts is seeking to reassure us to encourage us, to give us certainty that Jesus really still is at work, at work powerfully. And we said, as we opened our series over a year ago, that as Luke does that, he records these events from the early church, he shows us what it looks like for us today to live out faithful lives of following our Lord Jesus Christ. His aim, I think, if we thought about this evening, is to get us up out of our seats and to get us going again. Call us to action. What does it look like for us to be a church together, to love each other, to do life together? And then what does it look like to get serious about playing our part today too in taking this good news of Jesus out to the ends of the earth? Remember we titled the series here, that based on Acts 1 verse 8, being those who take up this early disciples call to be witnesses, to be those who testify to Christ right to the ends of the earth of the earth. That's what we're called to. And as we reached the end of Acts 14 in June last year, that's what we had seen. We'd seen happening, widening out, first from within Jerusalem to then out in wider areas of Judea, Galilee, Samaria. The church has been growing, multiplying as God's word has gone out. And then in recent chapters, we'd seen this ever-expanding circle Do you remember we talked about this imagery of the pebble dropped into the pond and wider and wider the ripples go out and so now we've seen the same with the gospel. It's gone out further and further afield to places like Antioch in Syria, to Cyprus, to Pamphylia, to Galatia as God has just continued to open the door for the Gentiles to come and be a part of his people. And so we read at the end of chapter 14 these words. If you want to turn there with me. We read of the missionaries Paul and Barnabas returning to Antioch, where they'd been sent out from, and there, verse 27, declaring to the church in Antioch all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 
So here's the point that we've reached. And it's important, I think, to understand this, to understand the context of tonight's passage then. The gospel has gone out. And now people, in increasing numbers, it seems, are coming and trusting in Christ. And particularly people who otherwise had no previous link to Judaism. They're coming into God's kingdom. And when at first glance, us looking back, this seems to only be good news, doesn't it? It's worth recognizing that this is a big shift. This is a big shift in the way of thinking for the Jews back then. After all, they were God's people, weren't they? He'd chosen them. He'd given them these specific commands to set them apart from the rest of the world, to set them apart from the Gentiles. Commands set out in the law of Moses, commands like circumcision, which was the sign of being a part of God's people in the Old Testament. And so here at at the start of Acts 15, we've reached what is basically a crisis point in the spread of the gospel. Because while these Gentiles in places like Antioch, Cyprus, Galatia, had been coming to Christ, we now read in Acts 15, verse 1, of some men coming down from Judea to Antioch and teaching the brothers there that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Later in verse 5, we see something similar and a bit expanded, don't you, if you look there with me. It seems that not only was circumcision a requirement, but also law-keeping. Read with me there. Some people belonging to the party of the Pharisees say it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so as I say, we've reached this crisis point. With this now steady flow of Gentiles becoming Christians, here is the critical question. Are circumcision and law-keeping required to be saved? Is faith in Christ alone enough to now become a part of God's people, or is more required? Do you have to essentially become a Jewish Christian? Trusting in Christ, yes, but also then doing these other things to help set you apart. And as we read this and think about it, we really are thinking about the foundational truths of the gospel this evening, aren't we? What is the gospel? Particularly, as we'll read the Philippian jailer asking next Sunday evening in Acts 16, What about this question? What must I do to be saved? Of course, for us this evening, this is therefore still an incredibly relevant question, isn't it? There isn't a bigger one. And this is the question we find here in our passage. We can see from chapter 15, verse 2, that this question is hotly debated, isn't it? With Paul and Barnabas having no small dissension and debate with those requiring the Gentiles to be circumcised. So much so that it was decided, wasn't it there, that Paul and Barnabas should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question, which is what they do. Along the way, uh, verse 3, we, we read of them passing through, don't we? Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and bringing great joy to the brothers. And as they continue to declare all that God has done with them to the apostles, the elders, and the church in Jerusalem, we see again that critical question being brought up by the party of the Pharisees. 
do these Gentile believers need to be circumcised and to keep the law? So what's the response in verse 6? Well, it seems that the apostles and elders in Jerusalem recognize again, don't they, just how big an issue this is, just how important a question it is. And so they want to get it right. They want to think wisely about this this issue. And so they gather together, don't they, to consider the matter. And again, as in verse 2 in Antioch, the language there in verse 7 shows just how much debate there was. We read there, don't we? There was much debate. And we can imagine it, can't we? We aren't told the details, but we can imagine those on the one side coming and saying, but no, it's always been the case, hasn't it, that circumcision is a sign of what it is to be a part of God's people. And on the other side, but wait, hasn't Jesus coming changed all of that? Hasn't it changed what it now means to become a part of God's people? And so after much debate which again, we're left to imagine for ourselves, we then read of three key speeches here in our passage. First, by Peter, second, by Barnabas and Paul, and third, and finally, by the Apostle James, who's Jesus' brother. And what do we see in each of these? A clear answer to this critical question we've been thinking about. Each of them, in their own way, says, no. Circumcision, law-keeping, they are not required to be saved. All are saved only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That language there of being saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus is how Peter concludes the first of these speeches. If you look with me at verse 11, he rounds off what he says, doesn't he? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And we can see from what he said before that Peter is arguing this based on this vision. Do you remember this vision that he had back in Acts 10? And his subsequent encounter then with Cornelius. The vision had shown Peter, hadn't it, that there was no more distinction between animals, clean and unclean. So therefore there was also now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And as a result, Peter was free to go and proclaim the gospel to this man, Cornelius, who's a Gentile centurion. He was even free to enter his house, to share fellowship, to eat with him. And here's the first key point then that Peter makes in verse 7. It was God who did this. It was God who, by this vision and by the Spirit's direction, chose him to go and take the gospel to these Gentiles. This wasn't Peter's own decision or his doing. And when he had done this, as you see him saying there in verse 8 then, God gave these Gentiles the Holy Spirit, just as he had done for the Jews. So, Peter says, verse 9, it is clear. God made no distinction between us and between them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. By implication, not having done anything else. These Gentiles didn't first need to be circumcised to receive the Spirit. And then he makes this killer point in verse 10. If this is the case, if this is how it works, if this is how salvation comes, why are those calling for these Gentiles to be circumcised, placing a yoke on the Gentile believer's neck that no Jew before, no Jew then, and no Jew to come would ever be able to bear? 
Isn't this the whole point of Jesus' coming? We can hear Peter saying, no one can keep the law. This is why Jesus' coming is such good news for you Jews, Peter's saying. Because if you could only be saved by perfectly obeying the law, that would be it. You couldn't do it. So are we now going to turn around and say to the Gentiles that they should now bear that yoke of law-bearing that you have been freed from? No, says Peter, that cannot possibly be right. There is no distinction. Verse 11, as we said, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. By implication, given all the context, all that he's said before, here's Peter's conclusion. God has made this clear. Circumcision and law-keeping are not required. We are all saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after Peter has made this point, given his answer, the assembly there are left in silence, aren't they, it seems? And then after a while, we see in verse 12 this second speech given by Barnabas and by Paul as they get up and add their answer too. We read here that they essentially get those listening to look and to consider what God, again, has been doing through them among the Gentiles, how they've been performing many signs and many wonders. Essentially, it seems Paul and Barnabas are saying here, if this is the case, if this is what God is doing amongst the Gentiles, and this is happening apart from them being circumcised, having to keep the law of Moses, who are we to stand in the way of God? To put the brakes on these Gentiles coming to Christ. And once Barnabas and Paul have finished speaking, we then read of this third, this final speech, don't we, from the Apostle James. James, it seems, has assumed some kind of chair of this, of this gathering, probably as a result of being an early leader in the Jerusalem church. And so there in verse 13, having had all of this debate, and now having heard from Peter, from Barnabas, from Paul, he sums up, doesn't he? And he gives this final word, this, this final answer, which again is a resounding no. You do not need to be circumcised and to keep the law to be saved. To do this, to make his argument, James again picks, on, picks up on Simon Peter's words. Here in verse 14, he calls him Simeon, which is his Jewish name. And he explains how what Simeon, how what Simon Peter has said, shows that God has taken from the Gentiles a people now for his name. Essentially, what happened there with Peter and Cornelius and his family showed that what God was declaring was that these Gentile believers now truly belong to God's people. They are part of the true Israel. And then powerfully, he goes on, doesn't he, James, to show from Scripture, here from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, that all of this was in accordance with God's plan right from the very beginning. For his people to ultimately be made up of Jew and made up of Gentile. Now, Amos is a book full of judgment, if you know it. Judgment on both Israel and the nations around him. But here, right at the end of the book, these are almost the final words from the book of Amos. God speaks hope. 
He speaks of how he will. Verse 16, picking up here in our chapter, he's going to rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. He'll rebuild the house of David, rebuild essentially his people. But notice here, not just with the Jews. Verse 17, with this remnant that will also include all the Gentiles who are called by his name. James says here to those listening on, do not think that what Peter is saying and Paul and Barnabas are describing is going against God's plan. No, instead, look at Scripture with me and see that it was always God's plan in the first place to include these Gentiles. As one commentator puts it, this is no divine afterthought. And this plan of God, his desire, even from the beginning, that Gentiles be included, incorporated into his people, leads to James's conclusion then. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Or as the NIV translates it, if you've got one helpfully, I think it translates it like this, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who turn to God. James is saying that these Gentiles are just as much a part of God's people as any of us. Why would we lay extra burdens on them? Gentiles do not need to become Jews now to be a part of God's people. No, they come as Gentiles, they come to Jesus. And Jesus alone. Just as the Jews now need to as well. As we add these three speeches together, what do we get? Well, a crystal clear answer to our critical question. Are circumcision and law-keeping required to be saved, to be a part of God's people? No. Not in any way. All are saved only through the grace of the Lord Jesus, through faith in him. As we look back on this moment in church history, we can praise God for this kind of clarification, can't we? At this key moment. Because otherwise, we ourselves today would not be able to stand, to be here as a part of God's people. If we were here because of anything that we'd done, we would be doomed. What these Jews in this passage who were holding fast to circumcision and the law as means for their salvation, maybe they didn't realize what they were doing, but what they were doing was condemning themselves. And they were also condemning everyone to come after them, weren't they? As Peter had put it, what would make them or any to come after them able to now bear that load of steadfastly, perfectly keeping the law any more than their fathers had proven capable of? But here we've seen that this isn't a requirement. That isn't necessary. No, all Jew or Gentile alike can come to God, be a part of his people through Christ alone. There is so much freedom, hope, and joy found in that that we can rejoice in and give thanks to God for this evening. But having said that, we do now have to make one brief comment. I'm sure you were sitting there looking at this as we read it. On this list of four things in verses 20 and then also repeated in verse 29 by James and and all of the apostles and the elders and what they ask these believers to abstain from. 
In place of circumcision and law-keeping, are these now then the four conditions on which Gentiles can be saved, that they're setting out? Well, again, no. That's not what we're seeing here. What we see here actually in this request to abstain from these four things is a request for the Gentiles to not now live out their Christian freedoms in a way that would cause harm to their Jewish brothers and sisters, to cause them to stumble. Remember, ceremonial laws, like those set out in the law of Moses, like those set out in Leviticus 17 and 18, on what the Jews could eat, who they could marry, have relationships with, which all of these abstentions seem to be referring back to, those two chapters. Those, Those laws have been around for thousands of years now, haven't they? And so Jewish believers likely would have found it very difficult to simply cast them aside immediately, or even then to be around, to be sharing fellowship with others who were blatantly casting them aside too. So I think what we clearly see here is a reminder to the Gentiles of their responsibility to love their fellow Jewish believers by being respectful, by being considerate of their consciences. And of course, we see this same principle set out by Paul elsewhere in the New Testament as well, don't we? In places like Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So even as we look back and we can see these as specific requirements here in Acts 15 as good things for Gentiles to do at that particular time, given the context of the church and the makeup of it, let's not today forget the priority of continuing to do the same, to love, care for, build up others other believers, rather than causing them to stumble by how that we live. We have a responsibility of care for other believers that is greater even than our freedom to indulge in all our own personal wants and desires. But for now, let's get back to the main question. The main question here in our passage, and see this, that not only is it Peter, not only is it Barnabas and Paul, not only is it James who say, no, Circumcision and law-keeping is not required. But actually, it is all the apostles and the elders, the whole church, isn't it? This is what we see if you look with me at verses 22 to 29, as we see all the other apostles and elders and the whole church now deciding, deciding, first of all, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So Judas and Silas from the Jerusalem church are chosen, and they send with them then this letter. This letter giving a united and definitive answer to this critical question of circumcision and law-keeping. Now, interestingly, I don't know if you spotted this, specific mention of circumcision, well, it's conspicuous by its absence in this letter, isn't it? But again, in, in in an interesting way, that makes the message even clearer, doesn't it? Verse 28, nothing about circumcision is required, is it? Nothing. God, by his Holy Spirit, lays no greater burden on Gentile believers than what we've just been discussing, abstaining from those certain practices out of love for Jewish believers. And as we see this, look also at the care that we see in these verses, in verses 24 and 25, by those here um, in Jerusalem as they send this letter out. They recognize, don't they, that what is being discussed here that as these people went out from Judea spreading this false teaching, 
This was genuinely troubling those who heard it. It was unsettling them. And so recognizing this, they make it clear, don't they? Those men who came out before, they have nothing, they had nothing to do with us. But now we do send men. Verse 25, look, proven men. Proven men who now come to you bringing our unanimous, united verdict. And it's a verdict to calm your troubled souls. There in verse 25, we read, don't we, of their one accord. No, circumcision and law-keeping are not required to be saved. And so as we read of the church coming to this hugely significant conclusion and sending men out with this letter to communicate it to their troubled Gentile brothers and sisters, what can we today learn from what we're seeing here? How can we apply what we're seeing here to our own day, to our, our lives? Well, first of all, I think this. A reminder that just as the early church back then came together, stood together and affirmed that salvation is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not through anything else we can do, we need to continue, first of all, to stand together and affirm the same truth. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the only thing that makes Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection good news to us. And good news then to take out to the world around us. Anything else that means adding to faith in Christ to earn us salvation is, as Peter puts it here, placing a yoke on our necks that we simply will not be able to bear. But Christ's yoke, do you remember? As he said himself, Christ's yoke is to be easy. And his burden is light. And so this is the message we stand on, isn't it? That we rest in ourselves. And then we look to take to the world around us. What must you and what must I do to be saved? Only this. Put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died to take away all of your sins and who rose again for your justification, defeating sin and death on your behalf once and for all. We might ask, is this message then under attack in our day and age, like it was under attack here in Acts 15? Well, almost certainly, right? If this is the one message that brings salvation, well, this is the one message that the devil would do anything, right, to try to undermine, to attack. The devil will constantly have this message of salvation in his line of fire, as it were, if we think of it like that, looking to stop it going out or to stop people believing it. We think about this here in Northern Ireland, as I've been reflecting, I think this might be one line of fire for the devil, as it were. This idea that Christianity is really deep down all about right moral living and about regularly going to church each week. The devil would love that kind of thinking to continue, both within the church and amongst those watching on in the world around us, wouldn't he? If Christianity ultimately becomes all about doing the right things or turning up at the right events, 
it loses all of its saving power. And it will also become a place, the church will come, become a place where self-righteous people come simply to look down on others. While weary, broken sinners who need Christ come only to find themselves battered. Battered down even further, probably never to come again. That is not good news to take to the world, is it? Let's, as a church, take a stand against this way of thinking. And every week, as a church, let's be proclaiming the gospel, the true gospel that all of us come, all of us come as sinners, and all of us come looking only to Christ, only by faith, only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ are we saved. We stand together on that. And of course, it isn't just together as a church that we need to stand and affirm that truth of the gospel of grace. It's also to ourselves, isn't it? Every single day. How quickly, don't we, we fall into thinking that we are saved by faith in Christ, yes, and something, and our regular Bible reading, and by really praying hard this week, and because recently, do you know what, I've been really on top of fighting that sin, that besetting sin that before I struggled with. Of course, all of those things are good if they're done with the right attitude, aren't they? Out of love for the Lord. But we need to stand, take a stand every day against the devil's lies and remind ourselves every day that our failings, they do not make us any less a part of God's people. And our successes, if we can describe them that way, they do not make us any more loved or saved. In Christ alone, our hope is found. It would do us the world of good to begin each day by standing in that truth, wouldn't it? As we'll be singing it to ourselves as well later. Then also, as we reflect on this truth, I think there's a warning here for us as a church to then proactively seek to live out this truth in our time particularly to how we live out this truth of the gospel of grace when people who aren't like us come in amongst us. Remember, the Jews here are essentially forcing their own customs, aren't they? Traditions and laws on these Gentiles, making them a necessity for them to be truly a part of God's people. The question for us is how do we or could we end up doing the same in our church? We need to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. Could there be anything else that someone who walks into this church comes away thinking that they need to do to become a Christian other than trust in Christ? Do they need to think the same as us? Do they need to think the same as us politically? Do they need to dress the same as us? Do they need to know the right theological words to say? Do they need to pray in a particular manner? Anything we can be doing to remove barriers to people coming to Christ and Christ alone. Barriers to them thinking that this is, this is a, a, this Christianity where it's tied to a particular custom or culture. Anything that we can be doing to remove those barriers is a good thing, isn't it? It's what we see happening here. 
Let's make sure we live this out here at Great Vic. We welcome people warmly in Christ because of Christ alone and point them to that same hope. Not in anything that we do. Not in becoming like us, but in looking to Christ for their salvation. So as a church, we've been reminded this evening of our need to seek to proclaim to the world around us through our words and through our actions a gospel of grace, not of works. But why should we do that? Well, to see this, here we move into this final section of our long passage for this evening. I'm sorry we are not going to get into some of the juicy details here in these final verses, but I hope you'll see why I wanted to include these verses uh, in a moment as we look at these, because in each and every one of these little sections going on from here, we see an incredible encouragement for us, an incredible encouragement to go on proclaiming and living in this gospel of grace, because in these final verses we see again and again the result of the early church doing this. We see the fruit of them standing in the truth of the gospel. Look with me and see how this gospel going out above all strengthens the church and causes it to grow. First, look with me at how this happens in Antioch, verses 30 to 35. Here we see Paul and Barnabas, along with Judas and Silas, returning, don't they, to Antioch, that place they'd been sent off from, seeking this answer to the critical question we've been thinking about. And in verse 30, we read that they gather everyone together and they deliver the letter. And just look at this incredible response. Verse 31, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And look how this continues as this letter and the heart of it was then explained further in verse 32. Look again at the language here. The brothers in Antioch were encouraged and strengthened. The gospel has been clarified. It's been reaffirmed. The gospel of grace has gone out. And this is the result. Joy. Encouragement. Strengthening of the church. But we don't just see this in Antioch. Look then also how we see the same in Syria and Cilicia from verses 36 to 41. After this sad, sharp disagreement, an immediate parting of ways between Paul and Barnabas, which, if we look back to Joseph, we still seem to see God sovereignly working through as he makes two missionary pairs from what was originally one. After that disagreement, we read in verse 39 of Barnabas and Mark heading off to Cyprus to preach the gospel there. And then in verse 40, we read of Paul choosing Silas and 41 going with him through Syria and Cilicia. And as they go through these regions, almost certainly doing the same as they've just been doing, delivering this letter, proclaiming the good news that it holds, look at what happens. Look at the result, end of verse 41, the strengthening of the churches. It's the same. And I find this so encouraging. Look then at how we see the same again in Derby and Lystra, and the region of Galatia in chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. Here we read that Paul comes, he brings this young man, Timothy, now with him. And verse 4, they go on their way through the cities, and specifically here we read of them, don't we, delivering to these Gentile believers and to all who will hear for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. 
Here they are taking this verdict out, this answer out, wherever they go. And what is the result? Verse 5. Look at these words. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Here is Luke's encouragement to us this evening then. As we let these verses sink in, the repetition here. Why should we bother being so clear on the gospel that we are saved by grace and not by works? Why should we stand, take a stand and so clearly affirm it again and look to take it out to the world around us? Well, because it is the one message that God truly blesses. It is the one message that truly strengthens believers for us to stand on and live on. It is the one message that truly saves. That's what we see here in the early church, isn't it? As this gospel goes out. And we can have confidence that it is also what we will see today too if we continue to do the same. So as we reflect on this, and go on into another week. I'm going to leave us with three questions. Three questions for each of us to think about. First, will you come again to Christ alone for your salvation this week? And will you personally preach then this gospel of grace to yourself every day? That is how you will find strength for this week. When you fall into sin and are tempted then towards discouragement and giving up in following Christ, will you remind yourself, as we've been thinking about this evening, that you are saved only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And when you maybe find yourself this week tempted towards self-righteousness, comparing yourself with, looking down on other believers around you, remember this. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9, it is by grace you have been saved, by faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Second question then, will you go out of your way this week and going forward here at church make, to make others feel welcome? whether they're like you or not, whether they live like you or not? Will you demonstrate and live out the breadth of the kingdom, of God's kingdom, that it is not for one ethnicity, it is not for one class of people, it is not for people from one particular background? Will you live that out in how you interact with, how you show love towards, how you rejoice together in Christ with everyone? who is found in him. And third then, as we see the early church doing here so boldly, so powerfully, will you look to take this gospel of grace out to those around you? Wherever you are, whenever you can. Because if we will, we can be confident God will bless us as we do that, that we will see fruit. God's word will not come back empty. Let's get inviting people to Hope Explored, as Paddy mentioned earlier. Let's be speaking to people about the hope we have in Christ alone, and that they can have too. 
Let's as a church commit again to like the early church here, being those who take the good news of grace, the good news of grace that we've received out to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these words in your word from Acts 15 and 16 here, Lord. We thank you for how they point us again to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the hope we have in him. Lord, we are sorry for when we look to other things in our lives to bring us salvation. Lord, draw us back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to stand on him alone. And Lord, as we do that, would you strengthen us? Would you know that in Christ, would we know that in Christ we have all that we need? We have received every spiritual blessing. Lord, help us to look to him, to hold fast to him. Help us as a church to do that together, to affirm, to stand, to boldly proclaim this gospel. Help each of us as well to do the same in our own lives. Lord, strengthen us In the gospel we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to close by singing these glorious words, in Christ alone my hope is found. Let's stand and worship the Lord.
And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.